you cannot have a conversation once a year about feedback, no? And I always say, imagine that you're crossing the street with a friend or a colleague, and the person is going to cross the street and a car is coming, and instead of saying, hey, watch out, you just stay silent and let the car <laughs> run over. It wasn't, it, it wasn't review time, so I didn't tell Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to wait until next year, no? So... Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be talking to Gustavo Rossetti. He is a fellow culture practitioner He's developed a culture canvas tool, which he has had sort of 20 years experience developing. I've started using it with clients. And I think when when clients have gone past the point of core purpose, BHAG, core values, and now they're saying, right, well, how do I put this into practice? What other elements in my business need to be contiguous with, with these elements that I already have put in place? How do I manage that? How do I surface it? How do I share it? and make it live every day and make sure that we don't lose it. And so some of the elements, how do you run meetings? How do you make decisions? How in your business do you drive and create psychological safety? So we talk a bit about his culture design canvas tool today, and we talk uh, talk about each of the elements in it. There's links on in the show notes to his website where you can find examples of, of culture design canvas for businesses you may have heard of like Spotify and Google. Fantastic conversation today. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Before you, you ended up on your own, you, were, you said you were working for large firms doing innovation projects? Yeah, I mean, I was in my last job was in Leo Burnett out of Chicago, and I was working with different global firms. So, yeah. Do the clients who use the culture canvas, are, they tend to be larger firms or smaller firms or, or a mix? What? Uh, the ones I'm working directly are mid-size and large firms, but there's a lot of appetite from mid-size and smaller firms as well. I dived in there and mentioned culture canvas. And of course, if you're listening to this, you might have no idea what that is. What, uh, explain the backstory to the listeners. What, what is the culture canvas and where did it come from? Well, basically, the Culture Design Canvas is a, a simple-to-use tool that helps you capture the culture of your company in one page. could be the actual state, but also it helps you design where you're going to go with your culture. You know? Because the moment you map it, it helps you understand the things that are working, but also the ones that are not. And then you can start designing how you can improve the culture. Because culture is a, it's something fluid. You know? It's not one thing. It's a thing that you do once, and that's it. Uh, I was inspired by Alex Osterwalder's uh, model, the business model canvas that has been very successful, has been in the business world for over 20 years. And basically uh, what I identify working with different companies, there wasn't a tool that allowed companies or organizations to map their culture in just one page. 
but more than one page, we try to capture the different elements of culture. You know, many times uh, when we talk about culture, we get stuck into, of course, purpose and values and maybe division and that's it. So we wanted to add more, more depth to the culture of a company and the canvas incorporates, for example, how we build psychological safety, the types of ritual that helps build the culture to life and promote the, the right behaviors. Uh, we talk about how we promote a culture of feedback, how we make decisions as a team, the norms and rules that guide a, a, how people operate, and of course, how we run meetings. I, so I'm intrigued by the meetings bit. How did that end up being part of the culture canvas? Because certainly I think, and I say often to clients, look, if I was a Martian and I just came down from outer space and I visited your business, if I just sat in on your meetings, I probably know everything there is about your culture just by attending your meetings. But like, what was the genesis from your perspective in, in fitting that into the one pager? For me, it was, I mean, as I mentioned, we did lots of tests with different blocks and, and see which one resonated the most, no? But we start with meetings because uh, meetings is how, how teams get uh, things done, no? And they can be really efficient or they can be a waste of time, you know? So I agree, I agree with what you were saying that if you join, like, out of space, a meeting of any company, you immediately going to capture the, the culture, are people participating? Are people showing up on time? Do they have a clear goal? Are they working together or are they just fighting together? Are they able to address the issues that they have as a team or they're just like avoiding conflict? No, So there's a lot of things that happen through meetings. Yes. And well, and psychological safety. Have we built, have we built that? Do people feel able to, to speak up? Yeah, and, and I think that for me, many people say, ah, oh, it's surprising to see that that element, but you cannot have a successful culture if people don't feel safe to speak up, share their opinions, but most importantly, challenge the status quo, challenging their boss, saying, hey, I don't agree, because we need to hear to every voice, not just the ones that are aligned with the company. You know? So in that sense, uh, usually when we're looking for new hires, we talk a lot about a culture fit. And we say that we need to look for culture fitness. So we need people that, of course, are going to embrace the culture, but also going to push us, challenge us. So we need to catch up with the moments of time. You know? So I want to hire people that bring not just they're going to be happy in our environment, but also are going to bring new elements, new ways of working that we didn't know that exist. And so hiring is not a specific block? No, no, no. But it, but it affects some of the elements that we have. For example, there might be some norms and rules that affect uh, how we hire. Like, for example, Zappos, the online retailer, has a rule that they hire local talent. So they would never bring someone from outside Las Vegas. They hire people around the area. That's part of their culture. It's a rule. So um, let's, uh, let's do this then. Should we, should we go through each individual bit? Where, where should we start to talk about it and see if we can pull some examples through as well? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Well, should we start with purpose? That's at the, that's at the heart of your model. Yeah, no pun intended, because it's actually for <laughs> no for those who haven't seen it, it has a heart at the center because I think that's that's what drives the the pulse and the energy and and the rhythm of the organization. So we know that companies are getting more into purpose, and purpose is becoming a little bit of a fad, having one in life in as a team and as an organization. But the important about our model is not only you need to have a purpose, but you need to live. I mean, the purpose needs to hurt at some point. If it doesn't hurt you, it's because you don't have a true purpose. So I'm going to give you an example. 
in the case of Patagonia, they, they changed their purpose to we are in business to save the planet. No, they're not saying we like to help the planet. They are in business to save the planet. So one of the behaviors that they promote and they uh, uh, reward is that their team members, their employees, actually uh, practice uh, activism. And what happens at some point that, you know, you go to uh, manifest and protest and then might, some people might go to jail because they're <laughs> exercising their rights uh, to protest. Well, what Patagonia does, they actually bail people out of jail. Not only their employees, but if they were protesting with their family members, they do that with them as well. And they pay for their lawyer. And if they couldn't go to work for one or two days because they were in jail, they actually pay that time, like if they were on vacation or something else. So that's a perfect example of a company that says one thing, but then they take their behavior to extreme because they support their purpose. No, in the case of Airbnb, their purpose is a, they want everyone to feel a local and, and accepted anywhere, no? And that's the point of their, their platform, no? You can travel to Europe, to America, to South America, to Asia, wherever. And because you're going to be staying at someone else's uh, house, you're going to feel more like a local than foreigner, no? And lately on, because of the, the, the recession, Airbnb had to let go 25% of their workforce. And usually most companies, when they have to deal with that situation, they take it, HR manage it, they don't want to talk about it, they just want to you know, silence the press. In the case of Airbnb, they acted like a real host. You know? They were a host to their employees. They spoke up about the issue they wrote a letter that was published on Medium that was really in public to everyone about what the company was doing. They extended all the benefits so people could at least have a health insurance for six more months. If people had worked in the company like for only a few months, so they were invested to get their, their, their stock, they still give them the stock. And not only that, but as a great host, they part ways in the right way. They create a blog with all the alumni that had to let go uh, with a bio and a recommendation to make sure that someone else can host them. No, So I think that was a great example of how you're living your purpose through a crisis. Yes. Well, as you say, and then it costs you money, you know, to live your values. A crisis will have you see whether these things are real or not. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I've been doing a lot of research lately on because I think that it's easy to have a purpose and clear values when everything's all right. When when push comes to shove, that's when you have to show that you really stand for what you're saying, right? Yeah, and also it challenges people to see where the values, where the values they've written down are actually the values that they live by, or the ones that they aspire to be. You know, like we might all want to be fitter and healthier and thinner and better looking, but you know, we're just not. And it doesn't matter how much we want to be unless we do something about it. We're never going to get there. No, absolutely. And and one thing that is for us critical, besides having a tool that's simple, the spirit behind this culture design canvas, it's that culture can be designed, but needs to be co-designed with your team, but also needs to be co-created by people. No, When we talk about, let's say in, in, in general, a pop culture, because culture of any country, city, a, a team, it's created by the people, no? So um, in that sense, uh, I mentioned Airbnb. 
what they did a few years ago is that they went back to their team with all the existing values. They have like six, seven values. And first, they realized that people couldn't even remember the values. No, So if your employees don't know what the values are, how can they leave them? It's ridiculous. So they went down and first they, they knew that they had to trim those, uh, those values down. But most importantly, to your question, they want to see which are relevant. So they, they embed all the employees into ranking the existing values and other values and see which values are inflating the culture, which values are deflating the culture. And then they were able to rank those and get back into the ones that they have now. I'm interested. I, I still need to, I still love to go through these block by block, but something that came up in the conversation you said there was about the teams and how different can each team's culture canvas be? I mean, you know, the teams are where work gets done. Meetings are where teams come together to, to make the work happen. And so how different can a culture canvas be from one team to another and still be in the same company, do you think? Yes, that's fantastic because they have all the power of subcultures and I think that many companies don't realize that subcultures are even more important than the organizational one because we are tribal, you know, as human beings, we're tribal by nature. We have a deeper sense of belonging to the smaller groups, no? And, and there's a lot of research. Imagine, I mean, you, so you're British, but then you live in a city, then you belong to a family. And within that, you root for Manchester United or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> or Newcastle United. Even. Or Newcastle, yeah. perfect. And so the closer you get to your passions, the more you're going to connect to that. You know what I mean? So, And that's the idea of subcultures. So that you root for Newcastle doesn't mean that you don't like England as a whole. You know what I mean? So we need to find that balance. So when it comes to purpose, core values, the subcultures need to be aligned. No. So if in the case of Patagonia, the company is all about saving the planet, we cannot be about making money at any <laughs> expense. No? So we need to be some balance. But then when it comes to rituals, how we get feedback, the types of meetings, how we manage meetings, we need to give teams leeway for them to experiment and, and manage things their own way. Yeah, well, I, I remember at Pier 1, we had beer o'clock at 4 o'clock on a Friday. And in the UK, we typically drank beer. And in Vancouver, they had, um, sometimes they had uh, piatinis. They designed their own, they designed their own drink at head office. And it's just, it's that, you know, what does the team want to do? It, there's the same ritual, but it's being enacted in a different way. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's okay because rituals give you like a sense of belonging. You know, it's like a rite of passage. And, and that's important that the, it's either you're in or you're out. So for example, Zappos, gives people, offers people like a, after their first three months at the company, they offer them like a three, $4,000 bonus, but not to stay, but to quit. So they tell you, okay, do you want to leave this job? I'm going to give you money. So it's counterintuitive because who would offer people money to leave the company? But this is a test to see, are you really a Saponian, which their core, their purpose is to leave and deliver wow. For them, it's a customer-centric culture. It's sort of about wowing their culture, but uh, customers. But not everyone's up to that uh, standard. So they want to test for a 18, 19-year-old, are you willing to take $3,000 and go to and find another job or you want to stay? Of course, like 90-something percent stay. The magic about this, because of reverse psychology, the people that stay 
they believe that they made the best decision ever, that they're working in the most powerful culture, and they're going to give their life because, you know, they need to justify themselves that they say no to easy money. <laughs> yes. Well, and then people behave in a way that's consistent with the decisions that they've made, particularly deci- things they've said publicly. So that rituals bit, I was intrigued when I looked at some of the uh, the images that you've posted. I, I quite liked um, Spotify's Moe threshold, which I guess is their sense of, you know, what what is excellent on this task and then celebrating success. I thought that was a really it's it's just a it's just a lovely way it's just a lovely way to write it. And so we've talked about rituals, uh we've talked about values and purpose. Most companies would would talk about behaviors, so what do we reward? Um tell me more about the what do we punish? How does that get surfaced? I that get about I mean I can't remember his name, but uh, there was a guy that uh, he became famous for saying culture is what we reward and punish. And basically, it's about aligning the company's behavior with their values. No? And uh, I always give this example. Many old companies say we need to be collaborative, we need to be team players, but then they end maybe promoting one of the managers that is individualistic, selfish, doesn't share information. So the message that the team is getting is we say one thing and then we talk about one thing. So that, that doesn't align, no? So uh, there are many companies like in Slack, the, the, the messaging tool, they say that they, they don't allow jerks. So brilliant jerks. So it doesn't matter how smart you are, you're not going to be rewarded. And actually, you can be fired if you become a jerk. Even if you're the brightest engineer in, world, in the world, they don't care. Uh, Netflix, for example, they punish uh, B players. Netflix is uh, very... Uh, it's a freedom and accountability culture. You know, they balance both ends, but it's very competitive. So if you're not an, an A kind of player, you're not, I mean, one of the best in the game, you're going to get fired. They're going to give you, in this case, they give you money to leave and say, you know what? Thank you. Go find a job somewhere else. Yeah. Well, and also that brilliant jerks things is interesting, isn't it? Because you might, you might find that that's superficially attractive, but the moment you say it and then you don't fire brilliant jerks, like you know, you're you're dead in the water, aren't you? You've set a very high bar. Yeah, absolutely. And imagine that's why we like the canvas having one page that people can have it on their desk or on the computer, so it's easy to get back to your manager and say, "Hey, you're not you're not being consistent with this," no? so and and push people back. <laughs> so. And how do you how do you surface uh, norms and rules? Like in, when you're working with clients, how do you how do you get the team to? There are two ways to do it. First. Uh, they're explicit and they're unwritten rules, no? So usually uh, we work first in diagnosing what the what are the rules that exist. And first we talk to the HR people because usually they have an employee manual or some kind of booklet that captures most of the, the rules. Then probably to your point, some of the teams might have something like a, in the shape of a email or some other document that defines, ah, we need to work like this. But most importantly, we interview people to unleash and discover what are the the hidden and written uh, rules, which happen to be the most important. Once we have that, uh, those, we work on two aspects. One is what are the rules that are helping us work better and what are the rules that are getting in the way? And then we either focus on eliminating, simplifying, or rewriting the rules that are hurting the team. No? Okay, so you're... 
taking away the things that are hurting and, and what goes on here are the ones that you wish to promote and keep working on. Exactly. We say that rules need to treat people the way you want them to behave. And most companies, the rules are so prescriptive that they're treating people like uh, kids. So then people are not responsible. It's Well, it's that bureaucracy, isn't it? Like, you know, at one point in, in our history in a business, one person did this thing that we disagreed with. So we brought in a rule to make sure that nobody did it again in the future. And But then all those rules have unintended consequences. And once you, once people think they're being treated like children, then they behave like children. And that autonomous behavior is gone. People are being wait to, waiting to be told what to do. Yeah, but also they're going to take, I mean, when I, the rules are so sure that I don't trust you because if I'm controlling you, so if you don't trust me, I'm going to fuck it up. Sorry. No. Yeah. So, uh, there's an interesting case, which is like um, Netflix, uh, their vacation policy is take vacation to, <laughs> tours. And, and at some point, like most companies, they were asking people to, ah, you can take X amount of days depending on uh, your tenure and so on and so forth. Now it's take vacation. You can take it's unlimited vacation policy. And the, the funny thing is people assume that because you're giving people freedom that everyone's going to go out and never work. And, and that's the, the contrary. Basically, there are two things to it. First, the company, because they work in an entertainment, a creative business, if people's minds are rested, they're going to be more productive. They're going to be more creative. So they need to take breaks. And also it's a very competitive culture. So you need to recharge before you get back to business. On the other hand, there's a lot of research that shows that only 3% or under 3% of people break the rules. Break the rules in a sense that they, not they break the rules because they're creative. They break the rules to steal money or, or, not, or don't follow the right practices. So to your point, people are punishing 97% of employees because only 3% are going to screw things up. Yeah. And it's it's fascinating, isn't it? Cuz they people feel it's it's that lack of trust though, isn't it? You know, it's you don't trust me. And that's just corrosive inside an organization. I mean, nobody would do their culture canvas and say norms and rules, we don't trust our employees. I mean, it just but if that becomes if that's one of the hidden rules, then you've got to surface it and say, okay, what do we do to change it? How do we make this so that it's not a thing? Yeah. But for example, there are many companies now that don't request employees uh, for approval. So if you have an expense, you went out, you took a client for lunch or whatever, you just submit the expense and you get paid. No questions asked. But most companies they go through a vetting process to make sure that you're not trying to cheat. So if you're showing people you're a cheater, then how can they trust you as a company? <laughs> oh, uh, totally, totally. So look, we've talked, we've talked there a bit about how we surface norms and rules. How do you surface the, how does a company think about its decision-making, how it makes decisions? Because I, I bet if I sat people down and said, how do you make decisions? Yeah, they understand the question, but I don't think that's an easy thing to answer. So how do you... How do you get people to think about that in a way that, that makes sense so we capture it? The first thing that we do is like uh, ask, to your point, we ask, we start with the management team and we say, you know what, how do you guys make decisions? And in the case of the management team, they always look at you like, ah, of course we know how we do that. So I ask them to write it down individually because, yeah, very arrogant or, or through mural now. And then we ask each of them to share out and then it starts seeing like everyone has a complete uh, different perspective on how the team makes decisions. 
So if there's no clarity, you know, even if you're making the worst, uh, the process that you're implementing is the worst, what's the point? So having the notion of decision-making on the canvas is first, we need to be clear on how we are supposed to make decisions. Then there are seven different methods for decision-making. So we need to choose one or maybe two that the team wants to use. Some companies, for example, Airbnb has one method that works in regular times and another method that works during crisis. So in regular times, uh, decision-making is completely distributed across uh, among teams, but then when there's a huge crisis, the CEO takes over and he is in control. In Netflix, people are giving complete freedom to make any decisions, but uh, they can use their managers as support to give them background, not to tell them what decision they need to make. But then for special large projects, Netflix uh, names what they call a captain, kind of a project manager who is in charge. And that person should consult with everyone in the team, but he or she has complete uh, freedom to make any decision about that project that they're running. Uh-huh. And I guess I guess also would fit into that the, I know that would be in meetings. I was just thinking about Amazon and their silent meeting thing and that, you know, reading stuff at the, yeah. at the beginning. That falls into meetings, yeah. <laughs> okay. What about the priority section? What's the timetable? What's the timescale that you use for that? Are you thinking annual, quarterly, long-term? I think that this is a, a simple way to help you make decisions. So once you have the, those three priorities, most of the decisions of the company are going to be super easy because you have that guidance. And we use this even over formula because we are prioritizing one good thing even over another. No, So it's easy to say profit over losing money. Yeah, that's a no-brainer. But for example, Zappos prioritizes wowing their customers even over profit. That means that the customer representative that has complete uh, freedom to make any decisions, if the client is pissed off, they're not happy with someone, they have the uh, liberty to give them some, I mean, maybe a debit card or another product or something or faster delivery service to keep that client happy, even if it costs the, the company money. So because they make that priority, they don't need to think over once, a, no, sorry, every time they're facing an issue, they know what's the right decision to make. So Patagonia, we mentioned Patagonia is in business to save the planet. So for them, it's the planet even over anything else, everything else. So if a company wants to ask Patagonia to produce their uh, branded uh, clothing for, for an event or whatever, before saying yes, regardless of how much money is at stake, Patagonia is going to make sure that that company is respecting the environment, they're environmental friendly. And if they're not, you're not going to be a client of ours. That's it. Boom. Yeah, very good. Um, so uh, there's a couple of bits that we haven't spoken about. Feedback. How a business gives feedback. That must be a bit like decision-making. I guess people say, oh, yes, we're very clear on how we do this and then find themselves not able to write anything down. Yeah, I think that that's uh, it's it's funny what you're saying because when we start mapping that, people say, ah, we know this, but then they start realizing all the the tensions no, that, they are, uh, uh, that they are operating in their culture. In the case of feedback, once again, the canvas is not about tactics, it's about more strategic. So we're not there to include tips on how to get feedback to people, but it's more, it's more about how can we create a culture of feedback. Many companies are ditching annual performance reviews because they're not working. 
But most importantly, you cannot have a conversation once a year about feedback. No, and I always say, imagine that you're crossing the street with a friend or a colleague, and the person is going to cross the street, and a car is coming. And instead of saying, "Hey, watch out," you just stay silent and let the car <laughs> running over. It was it, it wasn't review time, so I didn't tell exactly. Him. <laughs> I'm going to wait until next year. No, so, but also feedback shouldn't happen from the top down. It should happen across everyone. So it should be a regular, ongoing peer-to-feedback feedback. That's the culture we're trying. So there are some companies that they're training their managers to ask for feedback. You know that bosses or managers are always very good at telling people what to do? You should be doing that. Well, now they're moving towards start asking for feedback. Don't give feedback, no? As a manager. <laughs> Embrace that culture of learning and growing. So it changes a lot how we do things. In Microsoft, for example, the performance reviews that are attached to financial rewards in the past create a very, very toxic culture. Everyone was killing each other because only 15% of the, the top 15% performers could get a raise and a, a promotion. So that was everyone against everyone. So Microsoft decided to remove that, the, the new CEO, that practice and now they move into another practice that basically it's more about irregular feedback. It's less about judging people and it's more about talking about the work and what can we do and how can we improve it. Yeah, that, yes, it's always bad news when people set employees up against each other. The unintended consequences. But it's, I, the uh, annual appraisal thing just absolutely staggers me. I was talking to a senior director in a large multinational recently and you know, he'd had he'd had his annual review with his boss, and his boss told him he everything he'd been doing for the last twelve months was um, was not what he'd hoped, and his performance was poor. But he had no idea that you know he didn't he wasn't deliberately going to work to do the wrong things and and be marked poor by his boss. But his boss did exactly that, let him get run over because it wasn't review yeah. time. <laughs> Fantastic, and and when I you know the nine lies about work. Uh, by Marcus Buckingham. There's a, there's some great research in there from Cisco looking at what the right cadence is. And it looks like it's, you know, each week, check in with your manager each week as the best alternative to an annual appraisal. One of my clients, when I uh, shared your culture canvas with them recently, were horrified to find that they had no rituals. Is that common? Why is that? Why is that? Why is that? <laughs> they just looked at it and they went, rituals, we don't have any. And so they were they were mortified. Is that common? Not necessarily. I think that there are many rituals that exist within organizations, but probably they are not conscious. No? And one of the things that uh, basically defines a ritual compared to a habit is that the rituals need to be conscious. No? Um, so we help, we help do some, rituals to, some research to see if there are some rituals that exist within the company. And, how can, and also sometimes you have rituals that are not necessarily positive. No? So like you were saying, having a beer at every Friday in, at six is not necessarily a ritual unless it has a structure. Rituals need to have a trigger, need to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. No? So they have a structure, and this comes from anthropology. And But also they have to have a meaning. So what does it say about the team? How does it help the team grow? There's a company in, in California that's called Gusto that is an HR software platform. And basically, the guys were raised, the three founders, in a no-shoe 
households, you know. So now, whenever people visit their their headquarter, regardless if you are an employee, a family member, or client, they ask you to remove your shoes, so you can stay like very, no. But the ritual is interesting because it starts you getting to the, the the their office, but then they build a nice shoe locker for everyone to put your shoes. You're giving a nice pair of socks branded with gusto that are cool, and then you walk around and blah blah blah. The important is the purpose of this ritual is not just ah, let's not use uh, shoes. It's cool. It's about making you feel at home, making you feel welcome, bringing that vibe to world that when you're coming to visit us, you're one of us. So that's the point of rituals. It's not just ah, let's have fun. Yeah, it could be fun, but it needs to have a purpose. It's driving a behavior that we're trying to uh, promote. Yeah. Well, I was talking to uh, Horst Schultz, the founder of Ritz Carlton on the podcast the other week. And he was saying one of the things that they did at Ritz-Carlton is there was no, an employee couldn't give directions. You had to take a guest to that. So if they said, could you show, could you tell me where the spa is? It's like, don't give directions, take them to the spa. And so he said, but it's not for, it was for, it, there wasn't no purpose to that. He said there was a lot of purpose because it then gives you the opportunity as a, as a colleague to chat to the guest, make sure there's every, they're happy with their stay maybe recommend a restaurant in the hotel to them that they didn't know existed. You know, and he said, it just gives you that opportunity to interact with the guest. And so, you know, that becomes part of the ritual of how they treat guests. Well, that, I love that example. I think that there are two things there. On one hand, usually when you're giving directions, you get lost anywhere. At this <laughs> minute. So, so but also it feels like, ah, you do there and, and that's it. Versus, you know, when you go to a city that you're not familiar with and, and there are many people that are good and say, don't worry, I'm going to walk with you two blocks and, and help you get there. That sends a more profound message. No, It's not just about giving direction. It's about, I want to make sure that you get to the right point without the stress. No? Well, it's, it's a bit like your thing about the gusto and, and socks and home, isn't it? it there's, there's something, there's a warmth to that as well, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And so the last bit of the model that we haven't spoken about is psychological safety. We mentioned it, but but we haven't talked about how you, is this a concept that you have to explain to people? On one hand, I think more and more companies are familiar about the, the idea of psychological safety that was that came out after a two-year research from Google with the help of Admi Edmondson from Harvard. But I think the, the people get it. Now they know, yeah, it's about making sure that people feel safe. I think that many com- many people confuse psychological safety with trust, no? So trust is a two-way street between two people. Psychological safety is something that the whole group, not the manager, is providing, no? So if I'm going to take a leap, I'm going to jump, the, the team is going to be there like firefighters, no? <laughs> Waiting to catch me. And I think that most people believe that their workplaces aren't, are much safer than they actually are. And when we do work with clients, we know that fear, it's the most pervasive emotion. People are afraid to speak up. People fear that they're going to lose their jobs. So how can they bring their best ideas to their team? How can they challenge a group think or bosses when they're saying something that might not make sense when they're afraid? So we need to work on that. No? So yeah. Well, and that fear thing, I mean, there's an animal model for that, which is if you if rats are good at solving maze problems and, and if they can just sense that there's a cat, you know, even just like, you know, they can just sense cat protein, they lose all creativity. 
And so, you know, that's what you're saying is that, you know, that, you know, if, if your employees are fearful at all, then there will be no creativity, but there'll also be less communication. People, people look like they've, they've been struck dumb. And so what do people do to build psychological safety? I mean, obviously, reading, reading some of the work by Amy Edmondson and, and Project Aristotle are good places to start. But are there any things that, that you get clients to do to, to build that? It needs to start small. I mean, one of the things that we like to do is we, we have an exercise that's the Uncover the Stinky Fish canvas. And it has like four different questions. And basically, one of the questions that is really powerful is what everyone's thinking, but no one is saying, no? And also another question is about what are the things from the, the issues from the past that we cannot get over, no? And basically start to putting on the table all the issues that, that are affecting people, that people know, but they don't talk about them. I call them like silent problems, no? We're, we're suffering from something, and if we don't name it, if we don't talk about it, it's going to continue come and, and, and harm us. Once again, once we do the exercise, you cannot ask everyone to stand up in front of their bosses and share. So, for example, we pair people like in groups of two, like we build duos, and they start sharing with each other. Then we match two duos, so we build teams of four, and they continue to share. And now they're focusing not just on what each individual thinks, but trying to find some common themes. And then we make teams of eight. So when we have like those conversations that people start feeling safe one by one, you know, by talking in smaller groups, then each teams put all the stinky fish on the wall or on a mural now <laughs> virtually. And then they can start like uh, talking about it. So you create like a little by little that cadence. Another practice that works a lot, and I think it's crucial when we're having like a video conferences or, or, or workshops online, is what's called the conversational turn-taking. So making sure that everyone has their turn to speak up, you know, going one by one. But most importantly, having the louder voices and the most senior people in the room speak last. So they don't interrupt and they don't filter or like, you know. Uh, well, and they don't take up 85% of the available time. We've got these referees cards, red cards and yellow oh, yeah. cards, <laughs> and we give those to clients and people wave them on a Zoom meeting, you know, like, you know, yeah, yeah. it's not your turn, be quiet. So that's fantastic. Um, how, do, how do people get to find out more about this? So where should they go? Where should they, what resources have you got? Well, they can go to my website, which is a liberationist.org. I mean, you're going to find a lot of, I have like a, over 500 articles about culture and leadership, and many are like a different ways of how you can use the, the canvas, but also have articles on each of the blogs. So if you want to go deeper into psychological safety rituals, and I have tools to design rituals. So you can have a lot of not only content, but also free uh, tools that you can download there. If you want to chat about culture, you don't know where to get started, you can reach out to me. My email is gustavo, G-U-S-T-A-V-O, at liberationist.org. We also do master classes. No? A lot of people want to learn about the tool, sometimes because they want to use it on their own. Like We have consultants, clients, people from academia, like from all over the world. They're really great because... You don't just learn from me and my team, but you learn from participants from different countries with different backgrounds. So that's really a, a great a way to get you started. And sometimes people start using the tool on their own, and then they need some support or consultancy. Either way, it works for us. So, Very good. Um, and you're writing a book as well about, about the Culture Canvas? 
Uh, yes, yes. I mean, I'm working on a book explaining the tool, how it works, facilitation tips, examples, and a lot of stuff that is getting bigger and bigger by, by the hour. So. <laughs> but uh, yeah. When do you think it'll be out? I don't know if I'm going to be able. I, I'm trying to see if I can have it ready by uh, by the end of the year. So I'm 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 evaluating different alternatives. Very good, um, Gustavo. What is it you now know that you wish you'd known at some other point? Everything I didn't knew. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I mean, I always like to joke, but it's not fun that when people say, "Well, what drives you to do the work that you do?" and I think that. It's a connection of the things I suffer working as an employee, no, working in cultures that weren't perfect or with bosses that weren't perfect, but also all the mistakes I made when I was able to start running teams. I I, I run four or five companies as a CEO as well, so I made a lot of mistakes. So learning from my bosses and other companies' mistakes, and especially for all the mistakes I, I learned, is that what I'm applying, you know? So I think that's the, on one hand, more than try, I think that I like the questions, but also in my case, I think that if we don't make mistakes, we don't learn. So if I knew everything I didn't know before, I wouldn't have screwed up people and myself that. But on the other hand, I think that there's no better knowledge than the ones that comes through uh, mistakes. So no, if even if I read the book in advance, I don't think it would help me as much as, making those mistakes myself. What? <laughs> that Mistakes are sort of experiential, aren't they? People like to say it's great to learn from others' mistakes, but somehow we only really remember the ones we made ourselves. And what uh, what books would you recommend people read on on the subject of culture? Or more broadly? Am I looking at my, at my library? <laughs> I think that there's an interesting book from the former uh, HR a guy at Google that's called a Work Rules. His name is Laszlo. I cannot remember. I'm very bad with names. Laszlo Bock. Yes, exactly. That one. I love a Drive by Daniel Pink because you mentioned autonomy. You know, he goes into the notion of motivation 3.0. And I think it's critical for anyone that is a leader or leads a team or works on culture design because I think that understanding that you cannot force people to do things, no? The purpose is not just something inspirational, but tapping into what drives people and create a connection between what drives the individual and what drives the organization. And I also like a Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull because I think it's a, it talks a lot about psychological safety and feedback and how he was able to create a a culture of collaboration within a creative industry. We usually, those two don't go together. Any uh, advertising agency, most design studios, uh, film studios, they're very ego-driven, no? Because it's about the, the hero and he was able to remove that stuff and, and, and create collaboration, psychological safety, feedback, and team building around creativity, no? So. Very good. Gustavo, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much indeed for coming on and giving us your time from Chicago. No, my pleasure. So I'm enjoying the sunny weather here, so I'm happy. (laughs) And I hope people enjoy the conversation. I'm glad to be here. And thank you again for the invitation. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. 
for all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.